Hello and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm your host, Trevor Connor, here with Coach Holicky. On today's episode, we're going to talk about a modern and highly sophisticated method of periodizing your season, block periodization. Introduced by Vladimir Izarin in the 1980s, it led Russian Olympians to dominance. Now it's used very effectively by top pros so they can successfully handle a season that lasts from February to October with many target events. The concept is both simple and highly nuanced. For endurance athletes, the season gets broken into six or seven stages. In each stage, the athlete starts with a several-week block of base training, followed by intensive block of very hard, high-intensity work focused on just one asset, and then finally a short block where they rest and get ready to race. Done right, the approach finds that extra 1% or 2% in the athlete's form and allows them to be on top form many times through the season. Done wrong, it can push overtraining and mental burnout in the athlete. As a result, you'll get a mix of opinions from coaches when it comes to block periodization. Some see it as revolutionary, while others avoid it or apply it very carefully with their athletes. You'll hear that range of opinions on this episode. Joining us today is none other than legendary coach Joe Friel. His most recent edition of the Cyclist Training Bible added an expanded section on the various periodization approaches, including block periodization. Joe explains to us what periodization is and how block periodization differs from traditional periodization. We then dive deep into the pros and cons of the block approach and who should use it and even if periodization is necessary for athletes. Joining Joe, we'll hear from Dr. Paul Larson, the owner of Athletica.ai, Coach Rob Pickles, who couldn't make the main recording, shares his thoughts. And finally, we'll hear from gravel racer Starla Tettergreen and her coach Robin Carpenter. One quick note, we recorded this episode over the holidays while Grant was in Montana with limited internet. Our apologies ahead about the audio quality. So plan out how you're going to listen to this episode. We recommend you do it in blocks, and let's make you fast. Hey cycling coaches, this is Trevor Connor. I'd like to invite you to ignite your spark at the 2024 Endurance Exchange. This year's event is powered by USA Cycling and USA Triathlon and offers new info and great networking opportunities. Mix it up with endurance coaches from around the globe and soak up forward-looking talks from renowned experts like keynote speaker Dr. Inigo Milan. I'll also be there sharing my insights on how to choose reliable and trustworthy info in a world of information overload. Experience the Endurance Exchange this January in North Carolina. For more information, go to endurancexchange.com. Well, welcome everybody. This is, I think, going to be a fun episode. We are talking from a distance. Joe, you're down in Arizona and Grant, we got you up in Montana. Yeah, I think we got everything covered at this point. <laughs> yeah, we got the whole range. So Joe, it's been a little bit. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. It has been a while. Yeah, no, always a real pleasure having you on the show. And today we are talking about specifically block periodization. You, you've given me the warning that it's not your major focus, but I know in the last version of the Cyclist Training Bible, you really built out the periodization section. I know you've been very interested in the different ways you can periodize your season. So excited to have you for this episode and uh, I hope we have a lot of fun with this. Well, periodization has always been kind of at the, the root of my coaching, actually. That's how I got started doing all of this, was designing training plans for athletes. And so it's still kind of high on my list. But as you mentioned, you know, you haven't done as much with block periodization. And that's going to be, well, so first of all, I'm going to tell our listeners, we did a whole episode with you. This was episode 66. So this is actually going pretty far back. Yeah. 
where we talked about periodization in general. So anybody who's interested in all the different forms of periodization, what is periodization, and want that deep dive, that was another episode with Joe. Please go back, listen to that one, do the deep dive there. We're going to cover a little bit of what periodization is and the other forms. And so why don't we start there? You know, as I said, you did a, a deep dive in episode 66, but just give us a two-minute overview. What is periodization? Yeah, periodization, uh, it's got several ways of doing it. We're talking about one of those ways today, block periodization. But uh, I, I suppose we put it in a nutshell, if we just want to talk about periodization, the concept, the concept is that the closer to the race you get, in time on your calendar, the closer to the race you get, the more like the race your training becomes. You start out doing very general in your training. General would mean things like you're probably going to be lifting weights very early in the year, but no place in a bike race or triathlon or running race do you ever lift weights. So that's very, very general. But as we move closer to the race, it's training starts becoming like the race. So as we get down to the last several weeks, Prior to the race, you're doing workouts, which are very much like the adventure training for. Yeah. So, Joe, I think I actually took this right out of your book, but, I, you know, this was the most succinct definition I've seen of, of training periodization, which is really quite simple, which is simply a division of the entire season program into smaller periods. That's what we mean by periodization. Right. Is it more complex than that? And and. I guess the second question I have for you is what has been the traditional form of periodization? Yeah, it is, it is more complicated than that. That's a very good overview, but it's not really getting into the details. You know, if we take it down to the details, we can start talking about different ways to manipulate the various aspects of training. Let's say there are, there are three of these various aspects. One aspect is frequency of training, how often you train. A second one is duration of training how long your workouts are. And the third element is the intensity of training, how hard or easy the workouts are. And through a mix of those things, we can get the athlete ready for the race. But that, that mix of those three things becomes what we call periodization. How do I put together all the pieces to have my athlete ready to go when it comes to race day? That's what this is all about. So if we look at periodization and we look at what we refer to as linear periodization, Joe. So the original mindset of this and taking back to, as you noted, into the 50s, what did periodization look like before block periodization was introduced? It's referred to as linear periodization. Is another way of defining this way of training in the, uh, going back to the 1950s, as you mentioned. The idea is that, as I mentioned earlier, that the athlete is starting to train much more specifically as the season progresses. And so what we do in traditional or linear periodization is the athlete during the very earliest part of the season, now we're talking about really kind of like the end of the off season. It's the athlete just started to train again. We start at that point, start working on the frequency of training. So the athlete may be doing a lot of uh, cross training. A cyclist, for example, could be running, could be cross-country skiing, could be doing lots of things besides riding the bike. But we're just putting in a lot of time, but they're not very long, necessarily long workouts, nor are they intense. They're very easy. That's this very early season, which I call the preparation season. This is when we're starting to starting to get back into training again. Then we move into in this in this traditional way of looking at it, we move into what is often called the general system or general season of training, or the general period. I call it sometimes, or it's referred to as the base period. This is a time when we're now 
begin to back off on frequency and duration becomes the focus. So the athlete is putting in longer workouts. They're becoming longer over time. And that continues until the athlete reaches a, a level of which they feel is adequate as far as whether, whatever their weekly volume may be. We've now achieved it. It may not be any higher, quite honestly, than what they were doing in the prep period. In the prep period, we're doing all kinds of workouts. There was cross training going on besides, for example, riding the bike. And now the athlete in the base period is riding the bike. That's the primary focus of their training now. Once the athlete has established the uh, this general level of fitness, aerobic endurance, skills, muscular force, weightlifting, for example, they move into the, the more specific phase of training, which I call the build period. And that's a period where the workouts become a little bit shorter, but they become more focused on the intensity of, of the event we're training for. So if the athlete's training for a, a highly intense workout, we'll start seeing workouts that are much more on the high end, high intensity intervals, for example. So it depends really what the athlete is training for, what happens during this period, but they're now becoming much more focused. And as this period progresses, the workouts become more like the race. So if, if we're training for a, a, a bike race, for example, a road race, we might be doing this period of time is doing lots of group workouts. So if the athlete has started to experience the racing experience without it actually being a race, they may also be doing what I call C priority races. C priority races are those that are have uh, low value as far as the athlete is concerned. It's just something they're doing mostly to see how how things are coming along. It's kind of like a like a workout, but you're going to a race. And then there are B priority races. Those are ones that you're going to rest maybe three days before the race to make sure you're ready for it. It's more important than a C priority race. That's not nearly as important as an A priority race. So the whole season, this whole this whole period of time is built around beginning to develop the intensity that you expect to have in the race while maintaining the duration that we built up in the, in the base period so that we come into the race with both base fitness, which is the, the volume, the intensity, or the duration rather, and then we add the intensity on. And so we come to the race on race day, having both things that are prime and ready for the athlete to use during the race. So thank you. I mean, that's a great summary of traditional periodization. Now let's contrast that with block periodization. And the way I'd always heard it is, this was something that was introduced in the 80s. And you saw athletes for the first time. So it was, it was in Russia. It was introduced by Vladimir Izarin. And at the time, it was a secret. And you had all these Russian athletes showing up to the Olympics. And they were just absolutely dominating. People were saying, what's, what's going on here? What are they doing that's different? Izarin has since published all this, but it was a secret at the time. And what I found really interesting is he wrote in one of his first papers what he felt were the drawbacks of traditional periodization. And so let me quickly bring up these four points that he made. And uh, Joe, I'm very interested in your response. So the first one, is he said, there's just an inability with traditional periodization to have multiple peak performances. You can only really hit a peak once, twice, maybe three times a year. But what he really focused more on, and that's the, the next three drawbacks, is that the issue he saw with traditional periodization is you are training concurrent systems at the same time. You're kind of hitting all the different systems, all the different assets to be a strong athlete in your sport at the same time. And he saw issues with prolonged mixed training programs like that. It can lead to burnout. 
It can you know, just lead to stagnation. It gets boring. You're always doing the same thing. He pointed out that there can be an incompatibility of training different systems at the same time. So, for example, really long, slow bike rides are not something you should be doing at the same time that you're really working on your sprint because those long, slow rides impact your ability to train that sprint power. And then his other concern was if you're hitting everything at the same time, you might not be getting enough of a, a stimulus on any given system to really produce the training adaptations that that you'd want. So these were his criticisms of traditional periodization and became the the genesis of block periodization. Joe, what's your feelings about this? I would say he's largely correct. You go down that list, you talked about basically how many A-priority races can you do in a season? And I, I would really prefer that athletes only have really one A race. That's the best way to really make a reap the full value of, of linear periodization is to get focused on one thing and bring that focus to a conclusion on race day. Maybe, as you mentioned, maybe, maybe two A races. At the very most, three. Three is really pushing it. If there's three, they have to be really spread out over time, over the course of the calendar. So I, I certainly agree with, with him on that. I also agree that for certain types of athletes, it can be overwhelming with the amount of stuff you're doing in a, in a given week, amount of types of workouts you're doing in a given period of time. That can overwhelm the athlete to the point that he's never really getting focused on that the athlete needs to be developed to bring that athlete along. And, and we'll come back to this subject again a little bit when we talk about elite athletes, I know. And that really is kind of the last point there, which is generally what we're talking about is that age group athletes, non-elite athletes, are typically needing to improve a lot of things. They're maybe at 80% and they need to get up to as close as they can to 100%, but they're probably not going to make it unless they have a really long period of time to build their training, which is why linear periodization is, has worked out so well for those athletes. So they have time to build all this, all these systems over the time, uh, over the, over the course of the of an entire season, to bring themselves to a peak. But elite athletes really probably only need the neighborhood of one percent improvement. They don't need ten percent. They need one percent. Their fitness is already very high. They're unique individuals. That's why we call them elite athletes. They're not run-of-the-mill athletes. These are people who are from another planet, if you will. They are not the same as age group athletes in so many ways. So they've got this very small improvement they need, but it's very difficult to get that improvement if they're working on a lot of things at the same time. So they need to get very focused on working on just one, maybe two things at a time so that they can bring their fitness around so they're ready to go on race day. So the way I always explain this to athletes when they ask me about this, all periodization is based on this concept of overload. And Joe, I actually reread your whole chapter on periodization earlier this morning. And as a member, that was, that was right where you started. This whole idea that you need to do damage to a system. And then if you do enough damage, your body not only repairs that damage, but it super compensates and repairs that system better and stronger than it was before. So the way I always explain it to my athletes is imagine your body has the ability to do about 10 units of repair. So what you want to do is about six, seven units of damage so that your body can repair all that damage, but then have those extra three units to go beyond just repairing. So if you have five, six different systems or assets that you're trying to develop, then you have two choices here. One is you only do like a unit of damage on each asset. 
And then your body might go, well, you know, that really wasn't enough to super compensate. So I'm just going to repair back every one to where it was before. Or the idea of block periodization is you use five, six units of damage on a single asset, really damage it. And then you get that great super compensation effect. And what you're saying, which I agree with fully is that amateur athlete, the person is fairly new to the sport. One unit of damage might be all they need to super compensate. But when you're talking about an elite athlete, they need to do those five, six, seven units of damage for their body to say, I'm going to produce some improvements here. Yeah, training is all about stress. And that's what you just described. You talk about damage. You're talking about the stress we put on the system. And the system responds to that by growing stronger. This is a a concept which has been around for a long time in sport. and is the basis of periodization. And so the issue we're talking about here is how much can the athlete handle? Can they manage? How much stress can they manage and be able to move on with their training without being set back by it? And so obviously the advanced athlete, the elite athlete is in a unique situation in that they can really handle a lot of stress. We all are very familiar with elite athletes and what they can do. They can ride or run tremendous volumes of workouts in a week's time. They can handle very high intensities also in a week's time. And that's something that the age group athletes simply just can't do. That you know, I've, I've told athletes that if you have a real job, if you have a full-time job, this is really secondary to your full-time job. It's kind of like a job. But for the pro athlete, it is the job. That is what they're all about is training. They don't have anything else in their life, really, to, to be focused on besides this, whereas the age group athletes got lots of things in their lives to be focused on. So it, it's a challenge. So what the age group athlete is doing is trying to, we're trying to, to soften the blow, if you will, to the age group athlete by making small gains over, over long periods of time, whereas the pro athlete, we can make, take a bigger chunk, if you will, and have the athlete respond to that bigger amount of stress because they're able to handle it much better age group athlete can handle it. Before we dive into our explanation of block periodization, let's hear from Dr. Paul Larson and his opinion of the approach. Big fan, actually, of block periodization because it provides a bit of a short-term target, uh, like a nice stepping sort of target throughout an athlete's plan as opposed to you know, having a race that might be a year or more away. You know, I know that there's evidence that the classic periodization works quite well, but the, yeah, just for me, I'm a, it's, it makes life and training and coaching even a lot more interesting when there's a shorter phase to be able to train to, to, to get to that goal. And I think it's a more holistic sort of uh, training pattern as well, personally, Lots of ways to skin the cat, as we know, with training. But I like, I like the concept around the block periodization because you can bring in the, um, you know, the key sets a little bit earlier for, and for good reasons to, to be able to pr- prepare specifically for whatever the event that sits on the, the block periodization calendar. So let's really define this. What is block periodization? Yeah, block periodization is an interesting concept. It's the idea is we're going, to, we're going to focus on really on just two things in a week of training, for example. Uh, we're going to have a, a pri- what I call abilities. We're going to have a primary ability we're working on, and we're going to have a secondary, which is a maintenance of abil- an ability. The maintenance is something, something we did in a previous block. The block may have been, I don't know, two or three weeks long, we'll say. 
And that, that period of time we worked on, let's say, aerobic endurance. That was our primary focus. That's very early in the season. But now we've moved on from that. Aerobic endurance is where it should be. And we're moving on to something different for the athlete, which may be perhaps stamina, the ability to maintain a relatively high intensity for a relatively long time. That usually comes somewhere after endurance. So the athlete is going to do, I don't know exactly how many, but let's say two or three workouts in a week's time that are focused on stamina, the thing we really need to improve right now. We don't need to get a gigantic amount of improvement because the athlete has already got exceptional stamina. We just need to get that last 1% is what we're after right now. But we're also going to maintain the aerobic endurance that we did in the previous block. So the athlete may be doing two or three stamina workouts in a week, which are challenging. But the athlete is also doing aerobic endurance workouts during the week, but far fewer of them. Because now we're just trying to maintain that ability. It doesn't take nearly as much to maintain the ability as it does to improve the ability. So consequently, we can get really focused on the primary thing we're trying to accomplish here for this athlete right now, which is stamina, perhaps. So just to give the, the contrast here, when you're talking about a traditional periodization model, a mesocycle, so that's your, your long cycles in a season, might be 12, 13, 14 weeks, but you're going to be training multiple assets at the same time. The idea of block periodization is your cycles, these blocks or, or mesocycle blocks is what Isarin referred to them as. They are much shorter. They might only be two, three weeks, but in that two, three weeks, you are just hammering one particular asset and then maybe maintaining one or two others is what you're saying. So you really build that asset then you go into that next block, focus on another asset, and you're maintaining the asset from the previous block. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That's exactly what we're trying to do in block periodization, which is why it's primarily focused or our best for, I should say, for elite athletes. Those who can handle this type of training are few and far between. So again, if you're an age group athlete, this is probably not the thing for you. There are a few athletes you run into who are age groupers who are really at the extreme of their of their sport, they probably could turn pro if they wanted to, for whatever reason they're not doing that. Those athletes can probably handle this, but for the rest rest of athletes um, that make up the bulk of uh, the events we go to, this is really not the thing for them because of what you just described, which is this tremendous focus on improving something to its highest potential level, highest possible level, because this athlete has got the potential to do that and can do it in a very short period of time because the the gain that we need is very small. Well, I think another piece to this that's important is the ability to rest, right? And, you know, as you're differentiating between the amateur athlete and the pro athlete, that's one of the really big things that we find with those two types of athletes. And the pro athlete has that ability to really recover in between sessions so we can overload them over a short period of time in a way that's going to be very difficult to do with an age group athlete because they have to take care of their kids. They have to go to work or they have to do these things that's going to limit that ability to kind of sustain these high intensity, short period blocks. Well, I agree with you hundred percent on that grant. The elite athlete, the professional athlete, especially has really only got one thing they're focused on in their life. And that's training. The age group athlete has got so many things in their lives that it's very, very difficult to really make, a lot of headway in their training. So they've got to really kind of like spread it out over time so they can do it. You know, what I tell age group athletes is you can only have, if you have a high goal, which most age group athletes do have, if you have a high goal, you can only have three things in your life. You can have your family or your career and training. 
when they talk to a pro athlete, you can only have one thing in your life. Very few of them have families at this point. They don't have a job for certain. So that's really just their training they're focused on. So they can they can rest, they can sleep, they can take naps, they can they can do all kinds of stuff to make sure they're ready for the next workout that the age group athlete simply can't do. I think a, another thing that's really important to this whole block periodization concept, which is also something that you're going to see that's different in elites versus amateur athletes, is this concept of residual effects, which is this idea that when you, you train a particular system, once you stop training it, it doesn't just go away. You're going to have a residual. It's going to stick around for a bit. And Joe, you pointed this out, that some assets have a very long residual, like building that base endurance has a long residual. Other assets, like building that top end sprint, you stop training that for a couple of weeks and you're going to see a noticeable drop. So Israel did point out that it's very important to start training the uh, assets that have a longer residual. And that's kind of what you do in the base season and then train the, the things that have a shorter residual later on closer to your races. But I think another thing that's really important here, going back to this elites versus amateurs, is you see much longer residuals in athletes who have been at it for a long time. So I remember seeing studies where they looked at amateur cyclists who'd only been training for a year or two and pro cyclists been training for over a decade. And if they just stopped training in the amateur, you would see their VO2 max, you would see their aerobic endurance. Everything would just go right back to, to baseline as if they had never trained where in that elite athlete who had been training for, for over a decade, they could take a year off and yes, they would lose some fitness, but they wouldn't get anywhere close to being back to baseline. So an elite athlete has a, a much better ability to maintain those residuals. That's exactly right. First of all, they are unique individuals to begin with. They were blessed with what it takes to be a good endurance athlete, a cyclist, a runner, whatever it may be. They're blessed with that ability to do that. So what we have to do is make sure that we keep focused on what we're doing and the direction we're going throughout this, this entire training period. So your, your point was well taken that we've got to have this residual effect kind of at the front focus when we start to design the athlete's program, getting ready for their, their event, is that we've got to do things very early in the season which are going to hang around for a long time, aerobic endurance being one of those things, that's going to be around for a long time, even after they start cutting back on training. The same thing with uh, muscular force, for example, how much strength the athletes develop, that's going to stick around for a long time also. And all we need is occasional repetitions to, to maintain it. But there are some things that don't stick around. And you mentioned the sprint. That's exactly right again. That's not going to stay around. If you don't work on your sprint, it fades very quickly. So this whole thing is very complex and it takes somebody who wants to really give it a lot of thought to design a training plan for this. This is why it works out so well for, for elite athletes is they've, they've got not only got all the time to think about these things, but they can also have a, they more than likely have a coach who's going to give a lot of thought to these, this stuff and make sure their training is worked out in a way such that they don't wind up losing fitness over the course of the season, but continually gain despite the fact they're staying focused really on one thing during each block of training. So I think the last important thing to point out about block periodization, at least looking at, at Isarin's model of it, he breaks the season into what he calls stages. And each stage has three key 
mesocycle blocks in it. So, and he calls them accumulation, transmutation, and realization. So basically you do a stage with those three and then you repeat. And, and in a given season, you can do six, seven stages. You can repeat this cycle multiple, multiple, multiple times. But what does he mean by each of these with accumulation, transmutation, and realization? Yeah, it's, it's just different ways of saying the very same things we've talked about before, which is general, specific, and taper, or peak, which I call base build and, and peak. It's really the same idea. It's, he's just using much fancier words. Whenever you use a word that ends in T-I-O-N, that means it's a fancy word. <laughs> yep. uh, words that don't end in that, like, like base and build and peak and so forth, those aren't nearly as interesting words as words that end in T-I-O-N. But it's the, it's the same idea. It's, accumulation just means building the base and so forth. So it, we're, we're talking about the very same concepts. It's just being given different titles. Let's pause for a minute and hear again for Dr. Larson, who emphasizes that the stages in block periodization are essentially mini traditional periodizations themselves. So as with trainings, loads of different ways to skin the cat as we say, but um, yeah, you, both methods work, work great, we know, um, because we've seen, we've seen experiences and success with both methods. And sorry, both methods, so block periodization and what would you call the other method? I'd call it, I always call it traditional. Yep. yep. Yeah. So for me, I use block periodization when the, uh, the races align accordingly. So it's like, you know, it's like I've got really want to do that ride or that, that race. Uh, and I really want to do that race. And that race would be a great builder for that race kind of thing. You know, so I'm looking, I'm really looking at the race calendar and there's a real desire to do, you know, X, Y, and Z races. And then, you know, block periodization, at least as I understand it is, is blocking out and doing like a, a mini, uh, traditional, uh, periodization sort of program except you're, you're speeding it up, right? And you're hitting, you know, more uh, build weeks towards that event a lot sort of sooner. And yeah, so that's, that's when I do that. If, if there's, an, there's an event there that's to be done and it times appropriately in the calendar, you do a block, block method. So uh, yeah, like a short base, short build, short taper, perform. Have you heard that your gut is the gateway to good health? If you're an endurance athlete, gut health is even more important as the GI system directly impacts athletic performance. Did you know that the weather, stress levels, and the size of your small intestine can affect your unique fueling requirements? Dr. Alan Lim, sports scientist and founder of sports nutrition company Scratch Labs, joins the Fast Talk Femme podcast to discuss the vital role the gut plays in performance. This is a must-listen episode. Check out the Fast Talk Fem podcast with guest Dr. Alan Lim at fasttalklabs.com. It is really interesting because this is very different from traditional periodization where traditional periodization, you're going to have a very long base phase. Then you go into your, your specificity, your, your race training phase. And then you might take a, a quick, or you'll have a peak and then you might take a quick break and you might repeat that once. But here you see this being repeated multiple, multiple times. You just do a couple weeks of base. Then you have that, that intensity, that transmutation. You're doing two to four weeks of just hitting yourself super hard with intensity. That's the really fatiguing block. Then you recover for a week or two, you race, and then you go through this all over again. So you're going back to base, race, and peak phase six, seven times 
what you're feeling about that. It's a very interesting concept, and that's really kind of at the, the heart of this, this whole idea, is that we're not going to spread this out over, we're going to spread it out over an entire year, but we're not going to spread out the, what we call mesocycles over long periods of time. They're going to be relatively short, and the athlete is going to do a little bit of, of rebuilding of what we've, we've done in the past. It won't take long, to, for example, to get aerobic endurance back. That'll come back very quickly for an athlete of this, of this nature. And then we move on to the next thing, which is the, the higher intensity stuff. And we work on those things where the athlete needs improvement. And, and of course, what, what is also happening throughout this entire time, which we haven't mentioned yet, is that the athlete is being tested to find out if they're actually making the gains that we want. We're not just doing this with wishing and hoping with our fingers crossed. But let's say we're trying to improve the athlete's VO2 max, aerobic capacity. We want to know where that is at the start of this, this block that we're doing. Or we're going to focus on on VO2 max, and we want to see how we're doing as as the block progresses. So it involves being uh, somewhat of a lab rat, where you're really being tested considerably throughout the season to make sure we're making the gains we want. Otherwise, we're just guessing, and that that's something that typically age group athletes don't do. Perhaps can't even can't even do because there's a lot of problems associated with trying to go to a laboratory every week or every two weeks to find out how you're doing, not only the money, but just taking time out of your life to do something like that is difficult. That's one of the reasons why it's very difficult for age group athletes to even follow a block prioritization plan and why it works so well for, for advanced athletes. They are, we're really staying very close. The coach is staying very close to how that athlete is doing at all times. It, we're taking measurements constantly to make sure we're making we're doing the right things and moving in the right direction. We're not just wishing and hoping. I think another thing that's important here is when you look at that transmutation phase, so that phase where you're hitting that intensity hard. So let's say the the particular asset you're working on is your sprint power. You're not just doing a couple sprint workouts. For those couple weeks, you are doing a lot of sprint workouts. You're hitting them really hard. And you know, even for an elite athlete, by the end of those couple weeks, they are fatigued. They're going, wow, that was a big, hard block of a lot of sprint work and, and whatever this kind of secondary work was for maintenance. But they're going to be very tired at the end of it. And, and then they have to recover quickly and get ready for their event. I'd imagine that's something that an elite athlete can handle pretty well. I would worry about an amateur athlete pushing themselves into an overreach or an overtrain phase doing that. You know, if you ever read about Cavendish's uh, training, you get this idea of how difficult it can be. If we think of sprinters as all the other, it's like a natural ability, which it is to some extent. It's quite true. But it's got to be continually maintained and nursed and, and improved upon. Otherwise, an athlete like Cavendish is not going to be able to, to maintain it throughout, for example, the buildup to a, to a Grand Tour, which I understand he's going to do the Tour de France again next year. But that's that's the sort of thing that that type of athlete needs to be very focused on is is how do I make sure I'm not overdoing it? He could just spend his entire preparation period just sprinting, but that's that's not going to give him the, the results he wants. There's more to it than that. He's still got to get to the finish line. If you can't get to the finish line, there's no reason to have a sprint. So he's got to have some level of aerobic endurance. He's got to have some level of stamina to be able to get there, and then he can unleash his, his sprints. So all these things are put together in a very meticulous manner so that he comes to race day with all these things um, lined up and ready to go for him. It wasn't something that just happened haphazardly. 
is something that happened because there was a, a very specific plan designed around this, uh, this preparation. Well, I can give you an example of it from my own experiences. My old coach probably used a bit of a hybrid between the, the traditional periodization and block periodization. So as we were getting towards key events, he would follow a bit of that block periodization or approach where we would do that transmutation phase and we would have one workout that we would just hit really hard. And the time I really remember is when we were getting ready, I think this was 2006 Canadian Nationals, was in Quebec City. Joe, I'm sure you've probably seen some of the races in Quebec City and that hill that you have to hit. It's about a three-minute hill, super steep. And we were doing 14 laps where you would go up this hill, and we knew that was the key asset to develop. So several weeks ahead of Canadian Nationals, we found this hill that was very similar to the hill at Nationals. We were motor-paced, and we went and did 14 repeats up this hill, and every time we had to be well over 400 watts. And I can tell you, by the 14th time up the climb, every workout, there were only a couple riders left. It was just killing everybody. I remember getting through it a few times, and by the 10th, 11th time, you're just seeing stars going, there just couldn't be anything harder. And there was some truth to that. When we got to nationals, it was 14 laps, but you had 15, 20 minutes in between each hill climb to recover. So everybody's dying at Canadian nationals. We're getting to the 10th, 11th time and going, yeah, this hill hurts, but it's nothing compared to those workouts we were doing. But everybody did really well. So that's that's the kind of transmutation, hit that system super hard type workout. Yeah, exactly right. Reminded me of my college days. I, I was a runner in college, and this is back a long, long time ago when we were still doing Zatopec intervals. Uh, Emil Zatopec was the kind of the forerunner in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s for how to train for running. And uh, I used to call it intervals till you puke. It was, we would do these 400 meter intervals. I actually, in those days, at 440 yards, the tracks in the U.S. weren't in, in metrics, weren't metric in those days. So we had 440 yard intervals and uh, it was extremely challenging and made the race day seem a heck of a lot easier, but somehow we always got through it. Not only is it hard, there are other challenges with these high intensity blocks. Let's hear from Starla Tettergreen and Robin Carpenter with some of the other challenges. Like, honestly, that just sounds like it would mentally crack me. Like, I like the variety and I like the change and just knowing day after day after day that I'm going to be slogging it out. And then it's like, okay, you get through that, but then now I'm just resting, 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 resting. I would just, I don't know. I would, I would absolutely mentally struggle with it. Physically, sure, I could get it done, but mentally that's. I personally hate doing the same workout over and over again, or even, even twice, honestly, sometimes it's dicey for me from a, from a <laughs> yeah. mental fragility standpoint. Now I know why you and Grant worked so well together. <laughs> it, it makes it too easy to compare to like where you were the, the previous week and to then sort of get up all, all in your head about like, oh, am I getting worse? Am I getting better? Um, I like to, I like to mix it up a lot more and just maybe not like mixing up totally different energy systems necessarily, but having the, the workout just maybe it's the total exposure time is exactly the same, but just having it be a slightly different shape where I can like just have something new to focus on and not be comparing it immediately to what I was doing last week um, really helps for me. I mean, this is a great example of where you can go wrong with this type of training now. I mean, it is incredibly difficult. It's a huge load. 
And I think you have to be, as you mentioned earlier, Joe, it's, it's so much about the balance of when you're loading, for how long you're loading, when you move to the next piece, and how you come back and forth. The guidance is crucial because you can do, honestly, you could do one extra session and push somebody into overtraining out of overreaching. Yeah, that's, that's you're exactly right there. That's the reason why the coach really needs to be present. That's the best situation always when you're working with an athlete at this level and they're doing this type of training, the coach needs to be there at the workout or at least somebody representing the coach needs to be at that workout to, uh, to make decisions. When do we stop? That's, that's the first decision. When do we stop doing this, this workout and uh, call it, call it a day. Sometimes the athletes and, and probably most athletes actually will push themselves beyond their capacity to handle it and uh, thinking they're doing themselves some, some real good but actually what they're doing themselves is, is a lot of harm. And so somebody needs to say, enough, let's, let's call it a day. And so that's always challenging for an athlete to do. So the type of workout Trevor was talking about, that, that is really the big, the big problem is when do you stop that workout? When do you call it a quits? When I was in 440s as a runner, it was the same thing. Back in those days, the coaches didn't pay much attention to how the athlete was responding. They mostly <laughs> paid attention to what they had in their mind. And everybody had to do the workout regardless of how they responded to it or not. But things have changed a lot since then. We've become a lot more intelligent today about how coaches should work with their athletes to make sure we don't push them beyond, which is what, how you get going on a, a bout of overtraining or over extreme overreaching. But to give an example of this, and I'm glad you both brought this up, just that importance of the rest after you do this. There's a, uh, a study led by Dr. Ronestad. Um, I think this is from 2000. 12? Do I, have that? I can't remember. Uh, but the title of it is Effects of 12 Weeks of Block Periodization on Performance and Performance Indices in Well-Trained Cyclists. And in this study, they saw some real performance gains, some, some real improvements in these athletes using block periodization. But to give you an idea, here's the protocol. It would have the, the, the block would have one week where they would do five high-intensity sessions in that week. And these were not easy high-intensity sessions. So they would destroy these cyclists for a week. And then they would have three weeks of training mostly easy with just one intensity session each week. So it was one of that big kind of workout and what's that you'd call that transmutation phase. And then three weeks of recovering from it, essentially, with just a little bit of maintenance. And they would do, so that was four weeks they repeated that three times over the 12 weeks and they saw huge gains. But you can see they're spending a lot more time recovering from the huge effort than they spent doing the huge effort. Yeah, those are extreme weeks when you have doing around five five hard workouts in a week's time. That That is extremely challenging. Very few athletes could handle that. That's, again, why it's best what we're talking about is for, for elite athletes, not for age groupers. But deciding when to uh, when to rest is the hard part. If you give the athlete the choice, too often they will decide not to rest, continue to push on with the hard training. So that that's really the challenge: is making sure you're rested as as um, as you should be. And that that brings up an entire new area of training, which we won't get into here. But it's extremely important. This whole idea of recuperation post workout is extremely important, and I'm afraid way too many athletes uh, ignore it. They don't really pay attention to what's going on with their recovery. Well, and, and it brings up that, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. 
And some of that was an old Neil Henderson line that he used with a lot of athletes that I've taken. And you say it, you know, that's why being the coach being there is so important. Just because you can do that last one doesn't mean you should. And then as you're saying, how you recover from it. You know, one thing that I'd like to throw out there with what I see myself using block periodization with and a lot of other coaches and athletes using it for is we watch it in cross a lot. We're watching athletes have two races that are hard a week. They're usually doing a session week that's hard. Not, I mean, most of that stuff's very similar. It's high intensity. It's, it's really, really hard. It's short bursts. But we're watching people go through a period of time where there's a lot of that racing. And then they're leaving the racing for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks at a time, and then just focusing on base. You know, this is where I'm watching some elite athletes use this idea of block periodization. Well, okay, I'm getting my intensity out of racing. I'm going to take a little recovery after this high-intensity race block. Now I'm going to go away and go into the mountains. And you're watching the cross athletes or the road athletes. They're not doing a whole lot of quote-unquote hard rocky training, right? They're just riding some miles. They're just getting the base back in their legs. And it almost serves as a natural block. And this is maybe why we're able to see these frequent peaks over and over again over the course of the season. Yeah, this whole idea of how you, how do you prepare an athlete using block periodization is very, very complicated. There's lots of pieces here to be to be dealt with. You, you've just brought up major one, which is when do we take a break from this type of training to do something that's more basic, which is just putting in the miles. That's one of the key pieces of this whole thing is how do I make sure I'm not pushing the athlete beyond their, their limits? And again, from what I've seen with athletes, given no outside help on this, they will usually decide to continue to push themselves at a very high level as opposed to uh, backing off and getting themselves some rest as a coach would do. A smart coach knows when the athlete needs to be rested and can lay that out in advance and then watch to see what happens as the training progresses to make sure we don't overdo it. So let's shift gears here a little bit. I, I think we've established the really important message that if you are an amateur endurance athlete, this is probably not for you. If you are a, a higher level endurance athlete, particularly if you're somebody who feels like you've been plateauing and, and you're reaching pretty close to your potential, this might be something to consider. Keeping that in mind, and, and we're talking more to those higher level athletes right now, what are some of the advantages of a block periodization approach? Yeah, probably the biggest advantage is that we can we can really make sure we get the athlete brought to a, a peak of fitness and the abilities that are most important to their to the race that they're preparing for. That's a real challenge. It's not something that most athletes are able to uh, discern for themselves. This is where a coach really comes in extremely um, handy, if you will that somebody can look at it from a, from a different perspective and look at what the needs may be as far as recovery and rest throughout this period of time and how we're going to manipulate all the various pieces to make sure it happens at the right pace. And why we, and we wind up with where we want to be on race day because of all this, not simply somebody who's totally overtrained and completely wasted. The real challenge is for the age group athlete is being able to do this without coaching if it's an elite age group athlete, which there are some out there, they're not a lot of them, but there are some of them. If there are athletes out there, those people need to have a start messing with block periodization. I've coached too many athletes who I had to tell to stop training and, and block or rather rest because the block was just too hard for them. Period of training was too hard. 
and we need to rest now more than I thought we would, whereas the athlete was willing to continue on. And that's usually um, a disaster when the athlete decides to push themselves a little bit harder because they think they can handle more. Yep. So just going back to, to some of Isaron's writings, you know, a couple of the benefits that he brought up is a that ability to peak multiple times in the season. And you certainly see that, you know, when you're talking about the, the current professional race calendar, that's critical because athletes are expected to be on form for so much of the season. That ability to get on form quick and then kind of take that break, go back, do a couple of weeks of base training and then get back on form again is almost a, a requirement for athletes at that highest level when you're talking about professional, for example, professional cyclists. As Grant explained a couple of minutes ago, there are ways to apply block periodization concepts effectively. Rob Pickles wasn't able to join this episode, but he did share his thoughts and ways he's modified it effectively, even with amateur athletes. I typically do a modified block periodization that works really well with amateur and working athletes. And this is based on Dr. Bent Ronstadt's research in the area, whose research we've had on the show one of my favorites out there. The format is typically like this, and obviously things vary a little bit based on the week in the athlete, but the first week is a high-intensity week. Typically, there are four intensity sessions with a layout like Monday, intensity, Tuesday, intensity, Wednesday, recovery, Thursday, intensity, Friday, intensity, and then Saturday is either off or a recovery ride before a long aerobic ride on Sunday. Volume for something like this, well, it's going to vary per athlete, but typically we're looking in the seven to eight hour range. The second week is a high volume week that's focused on base training. With some athletes, especially those at a higher level, there's still one intensity session included, but mostly we're focused on zone two below the first lactate turn point workload. Again, the volume is going to vary by athlete, but typically it's in the 10 to 14 hour range. So significantly higher than that first week, the intensity week. The third week is either a recovery week for athletes who aren't used to high training loads, or it could be another base week, a repeat of week two. For those athletes that are doing the extra base week, we'll do the recovery week in week four. The recovery week in my scheme is a decreased volume and a focus again on that zone two, typically maybe in the six to eight hour range uh, with two days that are completely off. And something to note about this is that the high intensity week needs to be really purposeful. I typically focus on one area of improvement uh, based on the athlete and their goals, meaning those intensity workouts are focused either above or below threshold. But I do try to mix up the workouts, keeping them with the same goals. So an athlete on Monday might be feeling good, feeling pretty fresh. And so they'll do three by 20 minutes at 95%, which is a pretty tough workout, but sustainable. They'll come back on Tuesday with some shorter efforts, maybe at that same 95% of FTP, but this time we're doing five by five minutes with a one minute recovery. So overall, a smaller volume, more frequent recoveries makes that, in my opinion, a little bit easier of a workout for that athlete, but they're still focused on the same adaptations. Now, we need to consider the cumulative effects of all of these workouts and not go all in just for one of them. If we take that same three by 20 minute workout I mentioned before, we could do that at 100 to 105% of FTP, but that would leave the athlete absolutely trashed. And how would the following workouts that week be completed? Probably with pretty low quality. So I tend to prescribe workouts that are tough, 
but the athlete could have done another rep if they had to. And that seems to leave a little bit on the table, leave a little bit for tomorrow, but ultimately allow that athlete to generate more of that adaptive signal as they progress through the week. Now, the benefits of this is very much, in my opinion, that adaptive signal. Because we're sending the body instructions to get better at one particular thing per block, it seems to elicit adaptations that lead to larger performance improvements. I also think that this is easier for the athlete to focus. They can wrap their head around a singular purpose, and it creates a feeling of forward progress as they work through the blocks as opposed to week after week of essentially the same workout scheme. Lastly, I think that this is amazing for time management. For working athletes, it's oftentimes difficult for three weeks per month in a traditional periodization to be in that 10 to 12 hour range. With this form of block periodization, athletes only need one or maybe two high volume weeks per month. And because those weeks lack intensity, they're not nearly as physical or mentally taxing as in more of a traditional scheme. So ultimately, I find that this block periodization causes really large improvements in general endurance fitness, and it's great during what would be considered the traditional base phase of training. However, in all honesty, it's not necessarily the best scheme for race-specific performance improvement. And so I typically do a few weeks of traditional periodization where I'm able to focus on fewer, really hard individual workouts that help athletes get ready for race day. Something I wanted to bring up because I found this really interesting. So there was a, a very recent paper, this just this year, published by Dr. Seiler, where he did a review comparing traditional periodization to block periodization. And I'll, you know, I'll give you the headline to it to start with, which is they basically said there just isn't a lot of evidence of one being better than the other, that you tend to see similar improvements. But what I found very interesting with, and these are not studies on amateur athletes. These were studies on, on pretty high-level athletes. As a matter of fact, it was just with cyclists. But what I found the most interesting is block periodization seemed to produce the biggest gains in top end. So when you're talking about power at VO2 max, when you were talking about power at VT2, you really saw big gains in block periodization. But interestingly, once you started getting to the lactate thresholds, when you started getting to aerobic endurance, block periodization didn't have any benefits. As a matter of fact, um, in one study, you really didn't see block periodization raising VT1, so that aerobic threshold, that what can you sustain for long periods of time, didn't really seem to improve that very much. So it seemed like block periodization was great for really bringing about that explosive top end but might not actually be the best for building that really good base aerobic engine. That's interesting stuff. Whenever you talk about research in sports science, we always have the same problems that, that pop up. Number one is that there's usually a small number of, of subjects. You know, 20 people is a big number of subjects in a, a sports science uh, study, whereas in a, a medical study, they'll have 10,000 subjects to see what, what happens when you use a particular drug. So that's, that's always questionable. And then you have the range of improvements. You'll have somebody who improves a great deal and somebody doesn't improve at all. In fact, it gets worse and a lot of things in between. And so we start looking for averages and drawing conclusions from those averages. The studies are often quite short, a few weeks, whereas good studies go on for a few years. Uh, but that's kind of what we're stuck with when in sports science because there's not a lot of money behind putting these studies on and we've got to make do with what we've got at the time. 
So there's always some limitations when it comes to sports science research on what conclusions can we draw. I would tend to trust more what we find out with individual athletes and what I've seen from individual athletes who have used block periodization and have somebody guiding them through that is that it's very effective. They, they did extremely well using the system. Could they have done just as well if they had used a non-block periodization, perhaps linear periodization or some other variation on linear periodization? We don't know. Could they have simply done it by the seat of their pants without any periodization plan whatsoever and just decide today they're going to give this X workout, tomorrow they're going to do Y workout, then Z workout? We don't really have research that really is overwhelmingly giving us answers to questions. It points us in the right direction. And it's interesting to hear that there's a study that, that says they didn't see a lot of difference between the two types of, uh, of training. But uh, it always raises questions for me on uh, on who improved and how much did they improve and how, who got worse and so forth. Uh, so it, these, these are always difficult subjects. But uh, again, I, I agree that we need to be looking at research because it, it gives us at least some idea of what's going on. Otherwise, we're stuck strictly with opinion. Well, I think it's really, sorry, Trevor, it's really interesting though when you look at this and kind of what you're noting there is using it with specific athletes in specific ways. You know, if we know that that athlete thinks that way in blocks, I really want to go and give this a go for these two weeks, or there's a break in the race calendar where it makes a lot of sense to target one specific thing for a period of time, that may be where we're seeing the benefit for athletes. And under, But understanding that somebody doesn't necessarily think that way, or that's not how they're kind of wired, that's one of the things that most of our research can't take into consideration, right? What's the individuality of those athletes and what do they look for and what are they asking for? And so what you bring up, Joe, I think is a really good point. There are places to use this, but for me personally, it doesn't have to be one or the other. I think that's where I've used it with my athletes. And as I said before, with their racing, we come out of a racing block. We've got some time to work on base. We're going to focus on base. Or we came out of a racing block recently with an athlete and they said, okay, I feel amazing, but the only thing I'm missing is high end. And so we were able to make a transition here over two weeks, really focus on high end and see where that took them down the road. So I wasn't going to go there, but you two have brought this up. And I think this is a good conversation, particularly because Grant, I know you prefer to figure out your athlete day to day. But here is, I'm going to read the conclusion of this, uh, this 2023 study from Dr. Seiler, where they say, we do not find evidence in the available research literature that a specific periodization model, so they were comparing traditional to block, is consistently more effective in trained road cyclists. But then it goes on to say, neither do we find evidence that a periodized training model is superior to a day-to-day -day programming approach combined with a polarized pyramidal training intensity distribution ensuring adequate recovery from day-to-day. -day. So they're taking it a step further and saying, if you are just planning day by day, but you're planning it effectively, that can actually be just as good as periodization. So I'm going to throw it to the two of you. How do you feel about that? Is that going too far? No, it's not going too far. I've, I've got a friend who's a triathlon coach. He's coached several world champions, Ironman winners. He knows his stuff. He puts on camps for his athletes uh, throughout the winter. And uh, what he tells me is the most important thing he does every day 
He shakes the hand of every, each athlete and looks them in the eye and says, how are you feeling? He says that's the most important thing he does every day, and he can learn a lot from that and, and from decisions on how the athlete came that day relative to what they have planned. And I think he's I think he's got a real point there. I, I, when I was in college, for example, the coach was telling me about those intervals to you puke a while ago. He was right there with us. He was looking us in. He was talking to us. He knew how we were how we were bonding. He could make decisions based on all the information he was gathering. He wasn't doing this through training peaks. He was right there at that particular time with that athlete, talking to them and drawing conclusions about what they could do in training that day and perhaps even going forward based on all the information he's gathered, which is really probably what we'll see more of that with elite athletes than we will see that with age group athletes. Age group athletes are largely coached by Coaches who are working at some distance away, usually they have Zoom conversations, but elite athletes typically have their coach with them for somebody else who can step into the coach's place, an assistant coach who can help out. And uh, that makes a world of difference, being able to, to see what the athlete is, is experiencing and to hear from them how it's going is the most valuable information you can get from the athlete. Well, I think, you know, you brought up training peaks and this is one of the things where I think training peaks can do a really good job. The comment section and some of the things that they're trying to do with the smiley face or the frowny face, they're trying to give that same type of information to a coach that you would get being in person with that person. If I get a comment every single day, I'm going to watch how those comments change based on the load and based on some of the things that we're doing. And you, you're going to know sometimes by their mood <laughs> where they are before you're going to see it in their workouts. But one thing I will say with this idea of day-to-day, I think day-to-day is important. And I think that ability to be agile and to move is important. But a clear plan of attack over a period of time, whether that period of time is two weeks because you're really dealing with something specific or you're looking at a period of time of four months or a year or whatever that is, I think the two things to me that are really crucial with it is the ability to have a plan and a direction and and where we want to go and how we're going to do it. But then the ability to be agile, the ability to change, the ability to look and do something different becomes really important as well. So while I do like that idea of like, okay, we're going to we're going to shift on a dime here and we're going to go do something else. I think the value of periodization in general is in building a plan and having a plan of attack in a direction. One of my favorite sayings is, is that uh, a goal without a plan is really a wish. And what we're talking about here is planning. How are we going to plan? We're just we're talking about the how-to. There's many ways of doing it. But a plan is necessary to, to be working toward a goal. It shouldn't be done simply by the seat of your pants. I think the coach I was talking about was trying to make decisions to alter the plan going forward from what he's learning about the athlete on a day-to-day basis, which is exactly what what we should be doing. It's what the athletes should be doing for themselves also, but most athletes are not that good when it comes to making decisions, subjective decisions about how they should train. They're usually continue to push just as hard as they possibly can and see what happens. So so that's a very good point, Grant, and I, I certainly agree that that's critical to the success of the athlete. Yeah. That actually is very much in line with where I wanted to take us with this episode, which was that question of what ultimately are you doing with periodization? And something they 
Dr. Seiler brought up, but I'm going to particularly point out there's a, a researcher who's been publishing stuff very recently named Dr. Kylie, who has been challenging periodization in general, saying it, it's not really that based on physiology. And one of the counter arguments I've heard is, you know, particularly with block periodization, we're trying to zero in on, quote, energy systems. But we've already talked about this on the show in the past, that you can't really focus on a particular energy system, that all training tends to hit the, the same pathways. It's just not that specific. So trying to say, I'm just going to work one asset, not always the way our, our physiology works. And so I'm not sure I'm going to, I personally go as far as is Dr. Kylie, but if anybody's interested, he has one particular paper called Periodization Theory, Confronting an Inconvenient Truth. But my question to the two of you, which is I think where you're going, is perhaps an athlete who knows what they're doing working with a good coach can train day-to-day and do a fantastic job. But maybe the value of, of a, a creating that yearly training plan of having a periodized structure to it is just to keep the athlete directed and in control, to remind the athlete, it's February. You shouldn't be going out and killing yourself. Conversely, maybe just the, the one benefit of block periodization isn't so much that you're targeting a particular asset. I would argue the, the benefit is more having that elite athlete who has to do a ton of training stress to get an adaptation to have them know that two-week period's coming up where I'm going to have to kill myself, but then I'm going to rest. So I think I can get through those two weeks. And it's just about going really hard. I I agree. Those are um, very good comments along the lines of what should be happening. Sometimes I'm sorry we ever called it periodization. Maybe it should have just been called planning. Periodization has almost become a a dirty word in in some circles. I see athletes on social media talking about uh, periodization as if it's something that is... uh, really bad for you. It's not that way at all, but they've jumped to conclusions because they've read a a research study someplace that found there were some faults with periodization. As it is with any way you would design a a training plan for an athlete, there's always going to be faults. The issue is, can we find those faults and correct them as as the athlete is progressing through their workout, through their week, through their month, through their year? Can we keep making changes and updating the plan so that it's more in line with what what we're aiming for? as a final goal for this athlete. But you're right, there's actually a lot of research out there you can read that that really bad mouth periodization is really a bad thing to be doing. We shouldn't be talking about periodization at all. We should be we should be giving it a different name and call it something else because we've got this idea in the back of our heads, it seems like from some of these research studies at least, that it's carved in stone and can't be changed. That whenever you set up a plan for an athlete and we call it periodization, the athlete has to do that. And that's really not the way at all. It should be very flexible. It should be the sort of thing, as I mentioned with my triathlon friend who's a coach, is he's making decisions on a daily basis. Should he follow the plan today or deviate from it in some way? And that's exactly what should be happening all the time. Plans are not something that are carved in stone. They're not going to change. We need to be very flexible when it comes to a plan and make decisions based on what we're finding out with new information along the way. On that note, I can tell you from experience, when I first started coaching, I would map out the entire season plan for my athletes. And after about five, six, seven years, I got more in the habit of first I'd map out the base phase and I'd map out the early season phase. And I'd kind of map out a month or two at a time. And one of my athletes asked me about that and said, Trevor, you're getting lazy. You're procrastinating. (laughs) So why are you doing that? You used to map out the whole season. And I went... 
look back at those past years when I coached you. Look at the original season plan that I put together and look at what it looked like by June. Whatever I had put together in December for July and August and September was nothing where anywhere close to what we actually ended up doing. You know, I'd completely end up throwing out the second half of that, that season plan and, and building a new one. So I said, you know, there was no point in building that far out because as you said, the season changed, things changed with the athlete. So I just found it was better to, to build the, the season plan a couple months at a time and see where the athlete's at. I don't know if that's the right approach or not, but it's what I've found, Joe. What's, what's your feeling? It seems like that's in line with what you're saying. Very wise man, Trevor. That's that's a good way of looking at it. I started doing this back in the 80s, designing training plans for athletes. And um, I always laid out everything in somewhat detail, not down to the the exact thing we're going to do within a workout. But I'd lay it out for the entire season. But, you know, I always did it in pencil. This is before computers. I always did it in pencil because I knew it was going to change. And I, I never had an athlete in all those years of coaching who had their churning plan unchanged by the end of the season. It went exactly as planned. Uh, it never happened, not once. And I can't tell you how many athletes have coached hundreds, but never did it wind up being the plan at, at, by the time the season was over. So, it, again, I always did it in pencil. I always wound up erasing it. They, you know, they catch the flu. They have a business trip they've got to take someplace for a week or whatever is going to happen. People have things in their lives all the time. We all do. And because of that, plan has to change. The plan cannot be carved in stone. It's something you do without variation from now until the last race of the season. Well, I think this is all really good stuff and I couldn't agree with you guys more. Like, obviously this is the heart and soul of the things that I like to do. Listeners, this is a great time of year to expand your training knowledge. Join Fast Talk Laboratories now for the best knowledge base of training science on topics like polarized training, intervals, data analysis, sports nutrition, physiology, and more. Join Fast Talk Labs today and push your thinking and your training to all new heights. See more at fasttalklabs.com slash join. The big question, I think... I'd like to ask going forward is we've talked a lot about where we can have advantages to using block periodization or disadvantages to using it. I'd like to get into how we can practically apply this. Like, is there a place that we can do this? And I think for me, one of the things, and and Trevor, it was interesting to see you note it with the Sadler study earlier. One of the places that I really like to use this is with high-end work. And it's another thing that you noted that it's, and this is mostly with my professional athletes, but they know it's coming. We know we're going to do it. We're going to put a lot of emphasis and effort into it. And then we're just going to turn it loose. And they know they're going to get a break afterwards. So that's one place that I use it. Where do you, Joe, see this being used? I can see it being used with really high performance athletes, the elite athlete. That's, that's where it's going to be used. It's got it's to be done with somebody who's got a coach who's handy to the athlete on a regular basis, daily basis is preferable, almost hourly while the workout is going on and in the post-workout period. So if the athlete is being monitored, you really can't leave it to the athlete to make decisions during a workout. So they've got to be, if if the coach can be there, the athlete has to be given some what ifs. What if you feel very tired or if you're doing intervals, what if the power drops 10%, whatever it may be. What if this happens? What do we do then? 
that's the sort of questions that an athlete has to be able to answer. And uh, having the coach there solves the problem. But if the coach isn't there, then the athlete needs to be empowered to make decisions based on uh, some help they've been given probably by the coach on how to go about doing this. I find very few athletes who are willing to make those kind of decisions or even know how to make those kind of decisions. So the, the coach is critical to that athlete's success on that particular day in that particular workout because the coach can make those decisions that probably the athlete is not going to make. Yeah, and I, I just got to throw one other thing in there, which is I think if you're doing a, a true block periodization and you're doing the sort of high intensity, if you're an elite athlete that you need to do to produce those gains, this is also something that's very hard to do alone. Either having your coach there or better yet, having training partners that you can do it with to really drive you, I, I think is important. You know, I've gone through some of these blocks myself and I can tell you, most of the time I got through it because there was somebody else with their tongue hanging out just as much as me and neither one of us was going to be the first one to quit. And that was the only reason we got through. <laughs> yeah, that definitely helps in this setting, right? Having other people that you're going to go and be able to suffer with and, and be able to get up on a daily basis. Okay, we're going to go do it again. Okay, we're going to go do it again. Like You need that kind of support or team environment to be able to do that. You know, one place I see this working, as I mentioned it before, is, is a bit of a combination piece, right? We were using, I'm using with my athletes, these blocks that fit in around their racing or around their other pieces of their schedule going, okay, we haven't touched this in a while because we couldn't, we raced six weekends in a row. So now we're going to touch some base and we're going to spend some time there. Or, you know, we haven't hit any high end. So we're going to put some emphasis into that. I think personally looking at this and exclusively doing block periodization for the typical athlete is just really dangerous. There's just a really, really good chance that you're going to overtrain. You're going to put yourself in a pretty big hole. Yeah, this is a, this is the type of uh, periodization. I don't believe I ever used it with any athlete. And I've been coaching for a long time and a lot of good athletes. But I've always been just a little bit hesitant to do it because of coaching at all, all the athletes I've coached with very few exceptions. I've been long distance coaching. That's why Training Peaks came about, is so I could coach athletes without having to be there hand in hand with them. But the athlete's got to be able to make decisions. And if the athlete is not the type who can make those decisions, then it's better off to do something different. So I've tended to stay away from this. In fact, I have stayed away from it over the over many years. Not that it's not a good way of training an athlete. I think it's an extremely good way of training an athlete. But it raises lots and lots of issues and lots of questions about how we're going to do this. The most important being, um, how do I make decisions on a daily basis if I'm not there? So we've been having a good conversation here. We are definitely over time, which I don't mind because it's been a great conversation. But Joe, I think where I would like to finish this out, you have made it very clear that this is not something that an amateur or master's athlete should be considering or at least you know, if they're considering it, they should be really giving some thought to whether this is the best approach for them. So my question to you is what would you recommend as an alternative to that master's athlete, to that amateur athlete? What sort of approach do you think is the way they should be going? Most athletes will do really well just by following a traditional linear periodization. The most common has been used, gosh, for, I don't know, for something like, 60 years, something like that. 
this type of training has been around. Uh, there have been world champions, Olympians, people at all levels have achieved extremely high performance using that type of training. And it's relatively simple to, to follow. It just requires you to do certain basic things and follow them for a long period of time. The bottom line, I would say, I guess, is if, if you have a full-time job, you're probably better off not doing block periodization. You're better off doing some other form of periodization. And I would recommend just if, if you're not in sports science, just follow a linear traditional periodization plan, and you should do fine with that. Great. Well, guys, I think it's time to, to start closing this out. You both know how we finish out with our one-minute take-home messages. Joe, I have a feeling we, we know what yours is, but we'll let you go first. What do you feel is the most important message here for our listeners? Well, it's basically what I just said. The most, most basic thing here is that you've got to have some knowledge of what you're doing before you do block periodization. It's really not cut out for, for most athletes. It is very complicated. It takes somebody who knows what they're doing. And it's the sort of thing that better off having a coach lay this out for you especially a coach who's very experienced with this and knows how to work with the athlete, especially long distance to, to make sure it works out correctly. And the bottom line is, as I've said here a couple of times already in this conversation, is that if you have a full-time job and you have a family, it's probably not for you. It's probably it's designed for that person who has neither of those things. He's a full-time athlete. Very few age group athletes can say that. Grant, do you have any thoughts here? Well, I think um, my big takeaway is I, I agree with uh, just about everything Joe just said. I think one of the big takeaways for me is, and I am always big on harping on this, how you rest and where you rest. I think we get so enamored with the load that we don't talk enough about the unload, and that's where the compensation happens. So with block periodization, I think the danger for so many athletes and coaches that are looking to use this is, are we doing a good job at the unload? Are we doing a good job at the compensation phase? And how are we using that well? So for me with it, and I wouldn't call what I do with it a, a block periodization, but I do think there's value in taking short periods to focus on one piece that's been ignored for a long time for whatever reason. And that's where I look at it. But with the right usage of unloading and compensating after that period. Great. Well, what's interesting is the part of this conversation I enjoyed the most was actually the second half where we actually went way off script. We went off of the, uh, the outline and started having, to me, a really fascinating conversation that just raise some thoughts that I had never had before. So Joe, I mean, that always happens with you and, and I appreciate that. And what I got from you is the fact that I don't think there's anything particularly magical about periodization. I don't think it's a case of you have to periodize or you're never going to get anywhere close to your best form. I think an athlete who's experienced working with a good coach can go day by day and get to the same place, can get to their peak fitness. So what I got out of this is probably the greatest value of periodizing. And I'm not going to be one of those people who's anti-periodization. I think you should use it. As a matter of fact, I think when you're talking about a master's athlete who has a life and a job and all these other things to think about, probably the greatest value of periodization is having a structure. Because you can't spend every day analyzing your workouts and figuring out what's best the next day 
and spending 30 minutes on the phone with your coach discussing the options, you don't have a lot of time to think about it. So having a plan, having that structure so that you know, tomorrow I shouldn't go out and kill myself. Tomorrow should just be continuing to be easy, and that's what I'm doing for the next few weeks. And then I'll get into my high intensity once March comes along. Just something like that to give you that guidance that can be flexible is probably the greatest value that you're getting out of this. It just guides you. It directs you. Well, guys, thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. I have fun, Trevor. Grant, thank you. Yeah, it was good to see you again, Joe. Thanks for coming on. You bet. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Tweet us at at FastTalkLabs or join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com. You can also learn from our experts at fasttalklabs.com. For Joe Friel, Dr. Paul Larson, Rob Pickles, Starlet Hedergreen, Robin Carpenter, and Grant Holicky, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.